You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the third chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence." If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to which the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and I'll say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is unearthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as the church summarizes and confesses this in Lord's Day 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. 
Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, when I was growing up in Ontario, it was not all that unusual to hear people speaking about nuclear fallout. Remember, this was in the 50s and the 1960s, and these were the years of the Cold War. It was a time in which the United States, and at that time the USSR, had literally thousands and thousands of missiles armed with nuclear warheads pointed at each other. It was a time in which some people built bomb shelters as part of new home construction. And it was also a time in which people often spoke about the approach of World War III. Only it didn't happen. At one time, it got close when the Russians decided to install missiles in Cuba. President Kennedy faced them down and many thought the end is near. Only it didn't happen. Thankfully, saner minds prevailed. War was averted. Missiles didn't fly. Bombs didn't drop. And nuclear fallout didn't happen. And now that, beloved, is an illustration of what might be called negative fallout. But you know, there is also a different kind of fallout a much more positive kind. A scientist makes a new medical discovery and untold numbers of people are healed. Or mineral wealth is discovered in a certain area and local communities receive a new economic lease on life. Or a man or a woman receives a big inheritance and the whole family benefits. You see, there's negative fallout, And there's positive fallout. Yes, and among the illustrations of what may be called positive fallout, there is one that stands head and shoulders above all the rest. If you wonder what it is and what I'm referring to, well, I'm referring to the subject of this afternoon's sermon. We've come to Lord's Day 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And what is that Lord's Day all about, but about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And what does that resurrection of his represent, but an event filled to the brim with all sorts of positive, blessed, great, and glorious Father? And so I'd like to preach to you this afternoon on the following theme, Christ's resurrection follow. We're going to look at an unexpected present, an unusual power, and finally an unimaginable promise. Well, beloved, I've probably said it before, but it may be worth repeating that in some ways, Lord's Day 17 is a strange, strange Lord's Day. Look at what comes before it and what comes after it, and you can't fail to see it. The two Lord's Days immediately before 17, 15, and 16 are devoted to the dark side of Christ's life on earth. His suffering, sentencing, crucifixion, death, burial, descent into hell. 
And then after this Lord's Day 17, you come to 18, and there the catechism goes on at considerable lengths about Christ's ascension into heaven. But now look at Lord's Day 17. All it contains is one question and answer. In other words, here we have arguably the greatest event in the history of the world and in the history of the church, and all it gets is one question and answer. If you'd been asked to predict, you would probably have said, oh, this Lord's Day deserves at least three or four, if not six, seven, or eight. But yet all it gets is one. The Catechism devotes only one question and answer to the resurrection of our Savior. That's it. That's all. But now, before we all get our noses out of joint, we should probably stop, count to ten, and give this one somewhat measly Lord's Day, or question and answer, a good hard look. For what does question and answer 45 really say? Well, I like what it says. It may be short, singular, cheap, to some extent, but it's also loaded. For you know what it does is it instructs us in the benefits, the profits, and the blessings of, of Christ's resurrection. And there's lots of them. There's plenty of good, rich, fine, spiritual food and fallout here. And first there is this. By his resurrection, he has overcome death. See, what the Catechism teaches us for openers is that Christ's resurrection is the means by which he has defeated death. He's overcome it. And do you hear that? And and do you realize really how, just how momentous that is? This is truly astounding news. After all, death is among our greatest and most feared enemies. Do any of you like death? Do any of you treat it as an approaching holiday? Do any of you welcome it? Hardly. We all dread the sun. We all try to dodge the issue. We, we kind of stick our heads in the sand whenever the topic comes up. No one normal is in love with death. And so what we have here, beloved, is cause for great rejoicing. Our Savior has met death head on and he's conquered it. The one we, we love and serve and believe in is the greatest victory. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, he is the life bringer. Adam brought death, but Christ, Jesus, brings life. But life for whom? Is the death that he conquers only his own? And the life that he brings, is that only for himself? Is it only and solely about him? No, it's also about us. You and I, all of us, young and old alike. For look, 
The first part of answer 45 says more. It states, first by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Now, what's that second part all about? We understand the first part about overcoming death, but what's this business of righteousness all about? Sounds kind of complicated, also rather theological. But look at the sentence again. You can say that the first part about overcoming death describes what Christ Jesus has has done. Whereas the second part, which starts with the words, so that, is all about the purpose and the intent. The second part is why Christ has overcome death. It's all about his motivation. So what is it? What motivated him? What drove him to the cross and into the grave? What caused him to experience the anguish of hell? Well, beloved, it is the fact that he wants all of those who believe in him to share. To share in something. He wants all of us to share in his resurrection righteousness. Or ask yourself, what does his conquest over death really prove? Of course, it proves that death has been defeated, but you know, it also proves something else. It it proves that his redeeming work now has God's stamp of approval upon it. He has been approved. And in him we have been approved. It testifies to the fact that the sacrifice that Christ offered on the cross fully, completely, utterly satisfied the justice of God. You know, that's the point that the Apostle Paul wants to stress as well in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 17, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The point is this. A Christ who remains in the grave is a defeated Christ. An insufficient Christ. An imperfect Christ. A failed Christ. But not just that. For along with a defeated Christ, it means at the same time a defeated, dead, and doomed people. But on the other hand, A victorious Christ means a victorious people. A conquering Christ means a conquering people. Thanks to Jesus Christ, death is gone since power is gone, since plague is gone. The righteous one conquers and all of us who are his get to share in his conquest, and in his righteousness. 
Listen here, beloved, you have, you can say, the first evidence of positive resurrection fallout. Christ's victory means that sin has been paid for and righteousness is dished out to us. We no longer live under a cloud of failure and sin. We no longer dream the impossible. We no longer strive in vain. The barrier erected by sin has been broken down. By his holy, perfect life and sacrifice, Christ has torn it down. The righteous one has won. And in him, through faith in him, we are righteous too. You know, it's not for nothing that the Apostle Paul calls Christ our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. He really is our righteousness. But then, beloved, if the first sign of positive resurrection followed is about Christ making a share in his righteousness, the second is all about Christ raising us up to a new life. And now that, too, is a truth that's firmly rooted in the Scriptures. In, in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul elaborates on what it means to die with Christ and to live with Christ. And then he, he drives the point home by saying, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, you were dead, but Christ has made you alive. Do you realize that? Do you realize that as long as you're in sin, as long as you're in unbelief, you're dead? And that only Christ has the power to make you and I alive? And you know, the same point is made by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. There he states bluntly that we were dead in transgressions. We weren't just a little bit sick or a little bit wounded. No, we were dead, stone cold dead. But then God came along. And Paul says, he made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. And you know, he stresses the same thing again. He can't get enough of it. He does it in Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. You see, when Christ dies, He goes down. But when Christ rises, he goes up. And in the process, he raises us, all his people, up with him as well. And that means, beloved, that we are a raised people. But thanks to Christ, we have a new, better, higher, finer, fuller life to experience, to enjoy And even to revel in. And that too is positive resurrection fallout. But then it also has to be said that at times you would never know that we are a raised people. So often we fail to live like a raised people. 
So easily we revert to the low life and forget to live the higher life. And there are all kinds of illustrations of that. Take, for example, what can happen at school, even at a Christian school. Their students are supposed to know that they are Christian and that this means that they are called upon to live the higher raised life. But do they always do that? Why then do we keep on hearing about the fact that even in Christian schools, students so easily pick on someone who's different. Even their students are called names, are mocked, isolated, ignored, and bullied. And maybe this is a good time to ask, Great, oh students, does this also happen in your school? Are there students among your student body who are singled out, picked on, and targeted for abuse? I would hope not. I would hope and pray that you know what it means to live a raised life in Christ. And such a life is all about peace and patience and goodness and kindness and love. And that goes for our homes and families too. They're supposed to be like an oasis, a place where the higher life rules, but at times something else rules as well. In today's world, violent, sex-filled, profanity-laced programming so easily tends to rule many lives and many homes. Even Christian husbands and wives can be heard to speak to one another more in the style of the world and of the kingdom. And then, too, there are times when parents and children act as if love, respect, kindness, and self-control are behaviors fit only for an alien world. Beloved, do you hear what I'm saying? Here Christ, thanks to his resurrection, has raised us up, up, up to a new life. And now the question is, is that new life evident in your marriage? Is it evident in your home and in your family? Is it evident in your work? Is it evident in your school? Do you make that an aim, a goal? A way of life. It's thanks to Christ we've been raised. By His power we are raised. Do we avail ourselves of that power? Do we pray for it? Do we ask the Spirit about it? Do we consciously strive to put to death the old life, the low life, the sin-stained life? And do we put on the new raised and elevated life? Just how, how low, or how high, are you living? But then, beloved, if power and resurrection, or righteousness, represent positive resurrection fallout, 
So does something else. It's a promise. And indeed, you can say it's an almost unimaginable promise. The Catechism describes it in this way. Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Again, the Catechism gets this from what the Apostle Paul writes and elsewhere. In Romans 8, he states, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Quite simply, the Spirit who gives life to Christ will give life to you. He gives life to your limited, mortal, finite, dying body. That's His pledge to you. He says, that's what I did for Christ. That's what I did for my Son. And I'll do exactly the same thing for my children. And you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul makes the same point, but in other words, when he says, for as an Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Here the Apostle Paul insists once again that those who belong to Christ will well, they made a life. They will live. And the Apostle Paul says they're going to live as, as never before, especially when Jesus Christ returns again on the clouds of heaven. Then you're not only going to see Jesus, but you're going to see a mighty mass of people in his train following behind him. As Christ lives, they will live. He may be the first, but he's not alone. He's but the first fruits, the first sign, the first guarantee of the great and the glorious harvest that is coming. That's his commitment to you and I. To all who believe in him, we get to tag along after him. We get to play follow the leader. Only it's not a game. It's a glorious promise. And finally, beloved, you can also see that Paul dwells again on the same point in Philippians chapter 3 that we've read when he says, but our citizenship, in contrast to the citizenship of this world, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Some people spend a great deal of money on cosmetic surgery. And now in a few cases that may be necessary. And it may be money well spent. But I think that probably, and you probably think along with me, that most of 
that money spent on cosmetic surgery is not well spent. For underlying it, as well as some of the other ways in which we cater to our bodies, is the the idea that this is the only body you're ever going to get. So you might as well pamper it, enjoy it, favor it, spoil it, because you're stuck with what you have. Sometimes when you look in the mirror, you're not always happy with what you have. But don't worry. For what we need to remember is that there is this wonderful promise of Jesus Christ, this this promise of, of bodily, physical transformation. He's going to do so much more for you than an army of plastic surgeons could ever accomplish or a whole village full of health spas could ever achieve. Paul says he's going to use his awesome, all-consuming power to make your lowly bodies, warts and all, like his is today. Glorious. Perfect. Isn't that what Paul says? Christ has a resurrection body, an imperishable body, a glorious body, a powerful body, a spiritual body. He said, one day, ours is going to be just like his. It's going to be glorious. I think one day, you and I are going to look in the mirror and we're going to be blown away by what we see. And we're probably going to get blown away by what we can experience and enjoy as never before. A new body. This body, but changed, improved for a new heaven and a new earth. Without any sin, without any sickness, without any decay. And so, beloved, we have something together unimaginable to look forward to. And it's something that helps us offset what so often happens here below and in this life where there can be so much pain and weakness and struggle and disability and sorrow and suffering. You all know health today is not an automatic given. And a pain-free old age is not something that everyone gets to enjoy. All the more reason then to hang on to this wonderful promise, to embrace it, to make it your own and to dwell on it and to talk about it with others and to encourage each other with it. Know that one day all of us who believe in Christ are going to be lining up for a glorious body. So how's that for fallout? How's that for positive fallout? How's that for positive resurrection fallout? Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.com. 
www.thepeopleofgod.org.